0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Hefei, Zumin, Blacktip, Long John Sterling, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash pirate history podcast. That's P A T R E O N.com slash pirate history podcast. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We left off last time at the conclusion of one of those shipboard meetings that happened almost exclusively on pirate ships. The captains and crews were gathered together to make plans and ratify the code. This was a surprisingly everyday occurrence. It happened all over the Caribbean, relatively frequently in their secluded coves and hidden harbors. Right now, at this moment, there were nine ships. All of them were small. There were barks and periaguas and open single-masted boats, but all told they carried between five hundred and six hundred men. That's not a small fleet. It's not a huge fleet either. It's not as large as Morgans or even the fleet of John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp some two years earlier, but it was no slouch either. But again, though, this was a relatively typical sight in those days. Several hundred pirates meeting off the coast of the Spanish Main, planning a raid, well, if you knew where to look, you were likely to find one of those. You see, in a lot of ways, this time period right here was the real beginning of the golden age of piracy. Now, of course, that whole idea of the Golden Age is something historians named the period, and there's endless arguments about exactly what it means when you look back on it. When I started this show, I chose to begin with the discovery of the New World and Sir Francis Drake. He was the first and the greatest and certainly the most famous of the English rovers, and he really inspired generations of English pirates to come after. But of course, he wasn't really a pirate, after all. His actions sometimes walked a tightrope of legality, and he had sort of an. a sort of a rob the Spanish, ask questions later attitude, but he was still a commissioned privateer of the crown. Now, most historians tend to look at Henry Morgan as the dawn of the Golden Age, that era of buccaneers and the brethren of the coast, the. Combined English and French and Dutch corsairs that were raiding and attacking the Spanish main with impunity for years, well, that was a perfect time period, and with Port Royal actually being the hive of scum and villainy that it's been made out to be, it's picture perfect. That buccaneer era could be, and it often is, seen as the dawn of pirates, but still, something doesn't quite sit right with me. See, Captain Morgan does cut a dashing figure on the labels of bottles of rum, and his myth is certainly one of a bloodthirsty pirate, but to even call him Captain Morgan is something of a misnomer, really. Captain Morgan only properly describes him for maybe four years of his life at most, only two campaigns, honestly, and... After that, he becomes something else. He becomes Admiral Henry Morgan, commander of the British Jamaica Station and a commissioned leader of men. And then after all that, he becomes Governor Sir Henry Morgan, knighted by the king and commissioned to oversee England's largest and most profitable colony in the West Indies. Morgan owned five plantations. He owned hundreds of slaves. He appointed and promoted military men and naval officers. He... Signed reports and letters that were read by Parliament and the Lords of Trade and the Privy Council and the Lord High Admiral, even the King. Not to mention all of the Spanish viceroys and Lords of Trade of the French and the Dutch. Is that the typical career path of a lowly pirate? I mean, of course not. And much like Francis Drake, Henry Morgan had legal authority in all that he did. As did most of the buccaneers in the Brethren of the Coast. They were privateers. They had some form of legal authority, be it from their Admiral, Morgan, or even carried on their person. And so did the thousands of men that were sent to the West Indies and into the South Pacific in prosecution of that Third Anglo-Dutch War. They were legitimate, legal, commissioned privateers during wartime. But then when that war ended... They were just sort of left there. There were thousands of veterans, men who were in their 20s and 30s on hundreds of ships with, all of a sudden, no jobs and no prospects. I mean, what could they do? They weren't about to take up a job on a sugar plantation, and they didn't have any money to buy land. If they wanted to trade, legitimately, they would have to get a license through the East India Company. All they had were ships and guns. And so it's here, in that period right after the war, in the late 1670s and early 1680s, that we suddenly see literal armies of men taking to the sea to plunder and pillage and pilfer, whatever they could get their hands on. I think it makes a decent argument that this moment, right here, is the dawn of the Golden Age. Now, of course, it's a lot more complex than that in reality, and at best you could really call this the dawn of the first Golden Age of piracy, This would lead to all sorts of international crises, and you'd think that England would learn her lesson, but we'll see this scenario play out again about 30 or so years. But this era right here is often underrepresented by popular culture. In the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, we start off in Port Royal and the series takes us on to Tortuga. It's all very 1665, but then out of nowhere, a couple of movies later, we have Blackbeard show up like it's 1718 all of a sudden. I mean, are we supposed to believe that that time jump happened or did they just choose to ignore that 30 or so years? I think something here is a symptom of how the pirates in this underrepresented time were portrayed by their contemporary writers. Alexander Exquimelin was perfectly happy to embellish in his story. He was willing to sex it up a bit, add in a dash of torture here and there, and then top it off with the main character burning Panama to the ground and holding a Spanish princess hostage as a prospective concubine. I mean, that's a great story. And then later you see Captain Charles Johnson, whoever he or she may actually have been, absolutely writing a work of fiction. Those were real events that they were based on, actual history, but then they ran with it. And those were great stories too, but William Dampier, well, his writings, while they might not have always been precise and accurate, they weren't embellished fiction. They're littered with pages and pages of natural science. He'll go on at length about Indian dress and customs, or wind currents, or fruits, or... I mean, he wrote pages about the manatee. And all that's important. He did great work that probably advanced scientific knowledge about the Western Hemisphere more than any other of his contemporaries. But his work isn't exactly the bodice-ripping, swashbuckling adventure that really moved books off the shelves, and... As a result, this whole period is sometimes seen as less exciting, even boring. Well, today I'm here to make a case otherwise. Today's story has everything you would want in a yarn about pirates. It has battles at sea and sword fights and savage, barbarous Indians and friendly Indian kings and their daughters. It has witch doctors and Spanish armadas and stuffy English governors and romance. It's got terror, fleeing for your life, and then backstabbing and betrayal. This is episode 48, Winding Roads. That fleet that was at the meeting consisted of Captains George Wright, John Coxon, Jan Willems, Jean Rose. That was the same man that raided Portobello alongside Coxon and Sharp. Then there was Jean Tristane, Thomas Payne, and Captain Arkambod. Now last time I introduced Captain Arkambod as Captain Arkimbo, and Jan Williams as John Williams, and neither is correct. Now Willems may have introduced himself as John Williams, Englishman, but he was in fact Dutch, but he did have a lot of aliases but I think Argambod was probably just a poorly translated name by Dampier. Their fleet was gathered here, along with William Dampier, Edward Davis, and John Cook, preparing to raid up and down the main. Now, for them, this was just business. These weren't the romanticized rebels or anarchists that later pirates became, and more and more were shown to be. They were not out to shake the foundations of Europe or They weren't there to fight for self-rule. They were just old navy men, one-time privateers, and seeing as there was no peace beyond the line, they chose to continue their trade. So they raided Spanish cities, and they took Spanish ships. They stole Spanish gold when they could find it. It was a really just natural occupation. They'd been doing it in one form or another for basically their entire adult lives. And as far as any of them were religious, they were all Protestants. The English and the Dutch obviously were Protestant, but even the French in the fleet were Huguenots and Calvinists. The Spanish were a natural target for them, so they chose a target and they prepared to set out. But before they were going there, their first destination was to be a small island called San Andreas, just west of Providence Island. There, they hoped to find some ships to steal, but if not, there were plenty of strong, tall cedar trees there to build some sloops. Now, Dampier, Davis, and Cook, and all of the other men who'd recently arrived from the Pacific over the Isthmus, needed to find a crew to join. Most of the ships, though, were small and already full. The only one that had any room was the ship of Jean Arkenbaud, so they went aboard his ship. Now, at first, it seems like everything was going all right, despite them being a minority of Englishmen on a French ship, but it soon turned pretty awful. According to Dampier, the French were lazy, incompetent seamen. Quote, Indeed, we found no cause to dislike the captain, but his French seamen were the saddest creatures that I ever was among. For though we had bad weather that required many hands aloft, yet the biggest part of them never stirred out of their hammocks but to eat or ease themselves, quote. And just in case you're wondering exactly what Dampier means by ease themselves, he goes into some detail about the head on board a ship and the process by which men relieved themselves while on deck. Now, this was an altogether unpleasant voyage, but if you notice in that quote, he mentioned something about some bad weather. Their fleet was assaulted by a sudden squall and a thunderstorm that followed. It wasn't a bad storm, it wasn't a hurricane, and for most ships it wouldn't have been much of a problem. But these small, empty pirate vessels were tossed around, and quickly they lost sight of one another. Now, the storm didn't last very long, and Captain Arkambod's ship, at least, survived. The crew got their bearings, utilizing some of Dampier's navigational skills, and they set a course northwest for San Andreas. It only took a few days for them to arrive. But when they finally do arrive, there's no one else there. It's just a small, empty, deserted little island. There are trees, yeah, but around the island, there's hardly any fish, and there's no turtles to speak of. There's No birds large enough to bother hunting. There was no food, is what I'm saying. Now, they could still conceivably build a sloop, but if no one else arrived to join the crew, then why would they bother? They hardly had enough men to crew their own little ship, much less a larger one. But later that day, Captain Tucker arrived. His was an even smaller ship, hardly worth noting, and it had no guns, just a few men. His whole crew could go ahead and climb aboard Arkenbaud's craft, and they still wouldn't need to build another ship. And still, even that ship with all of those men on board wouldn't be enough to take much more than a fishing boat. So they continued to wait. Now, the next day, they spotted some sails off on the horizon. There were two ships they saw. One of them was small, and one was significantly larger. And they were headed right for San Andreas, right for the pirates. So they set about getting the ships ready to sail at a moment's notice, just in case, and they readied their guns, but they didn't leave, they lingered. The ships got closer, and the lookouts noted that the larger ship had Spanish sails, but still, they chose to linger. At the very least, they might be able to take the fight to any Spaniards that arrived and take that ship. Now, I think it would surprise most of us in the modern world just how slow- these sailing ships were I mean battles at sea could take hours unless it was one of those great big naval engagements between ships of the line. A sea battle though was mostly maneuvering for position and chases at sea might take days with very little really changing during that time and these men waiting on a ship of unknown origin who was potentially hostile waiting for that ship to arrive from the horizon could take the better part of a day now, I imagine it was tense. They didn't know who was out there, but also, don't you think it was kind of dull? I mean, you knew you might end the day dead or in chains, but until then, you would sort of just be hanging around. But finally, the ship hailed them in English and dropped her sails. It was Captain George Wright, who was aboard a Spanish tartan with his old ship in tow. Now, a tartan is a small, single-masted ship with a lateen sail and a foresail, that is two triangular sails, one attached to the bowsprit out front, and the other attached to the mainmast. Very similar to the sloops that they intended to build, and they would be fast and agile. They would be able to attack against the wind. If you think about a modern racing sailing boat, only, you know, covered with guns and filled with heavily armed killers, well, you've got the picture. For the pirates, this was a perfect prize. If they transferred the guns from Captain Arkambaud's ship, and as well as Captain Wright's, she would have twelve guns, plus four swivel guns that she already carried, and about a hundred men. The only problem there was that it would incorporate three ships, and three crews, and at least four captains, including John Cook. Now Wright, of course, agreed to take everyone on board, but they all had to agree to sail under his singular command, and not everyone was willing. Now, John Cook, William Dampier, and the other Englishmen immediately asked permission to come aboard. They were not at all happy with Arkambod's ship, and they told Wright all about how it was. There was some quavering on Wright's part, but eventually he agreed. Now, this was better for the case of the Tartan, but it still wasn't enough to fill her. Arkambod was the sticking point. He didn't want to come aboard, nor did his men despite the fact that they hardly had enough men to crew their single ship. Well, it was a good ship, and they didn't want to lose it. So they came to a compromise. Captain Tucker would go aboard Arkambod's ship with his closest officers, while the rest of his crew would sail under Captain Wright. And that's not a bad deal. Both ships would be adequately crewed, and they would have plenty of guns between them. Honestly, it was really even a little bit better than having one fully crewed, heavily armed ship. It would give them the opportunity to trap ships between them, or lure ships into an ambush, or at the very least, it would give them a spare vessel should one of their other ships sink. Now right here, I considered talking all about the backstory of Captain Wright. It's not a bad story, but it's really not a particularly important one here. Captain Arkambod even has a bit better of a backstory, but still, it's nothing special. They were both fairly prominent privateers during the war. They both started off as Navy officers, and they were given commissions to raid enemy possessions. They were even occasionally trusted to carry vitally important messages. And maybe someday I'll talk more about that war, but those are war stories. And while we do have detailed accounts of what they did during the war... It's all, well, they're all official reports. You know, Captain Wright sacked this port and burned this many ships, losing none of his own. They were reports intended for military planners, for the bean counters back in London. But what really interests me and what I think is important to this story is what they did later, what they did outside of the law. So the crews rearranged themselves, boarded their respective ships, and spent the next few days careening. They cleaned the hulls, they loaded guns, they moved food and rope and tar around, they adjusted the rigging. The tartan especially had an overhaul. It was turned into a proper man-of-war. It would be a quick, dangerous vessel, especially with those swivel guns at the fore and aft. If you're not familiar with the swivel gun, it's a small cannon attached to the ship that can be aimed more precisely than the larger guns on board a ship. It's used to take out targets when you're up close, and they had one at the fore and aft of each side of the ship. But after a few days, it became clear that no one else was coming to San Andreas. They may have been lost in the storm, but it was much more likely that they'd just been blown off course and sailed for their backup rendezvous. So the two ships sailed southwest. They stopped at the Corn Islands, or Islas del Mays, where they gathered a bit of food and hoped to meet up with some of their fleet. But there weren't any of them there. There were only a few naked Indians, which Dampier describes in great detail. But that wasn't their prescribed meeting place they continued on to the Mosquito Coast and made for the Bluefield River. Once again, they hoped to find some of their friends there, and there was actually a good chance that they might have here. The mouth of the Bluefield River had become something of a haven for English and Dutch pirates out of Port Royal. You see, the Mosquito Coast was full of Mosquito Indians who were hostile to the Spanish. And while that was certainly helpful, the Mosquito Coast was tactically important for more reasons than just that. It made for a really good place to stop between Port Royal and the main, so pirates would usually stop there to refit before heading on to attack Portobello or Cartagena or wherever they were going. It had become such a frequently used rest stop that there was even... Well, it's too much to call it a settlement, but it's really not enough to just call it a camp. There was... A presence on the Mosquito Coast. See, the Mosquito Coast was really close to Providence Island. Dampier even goes out of his way to mention the island properly an English possession belonging to the Earls of Warwick. But at this point, it was, of course, back in Spanish possession. But if you remember way back to that Puritan pirate expedition in 1630, the uh, English Providence Company, they tried to establish a colony on this island, Providence Island. Now, their main source of income was privateering, so the colony eventually fell apart under Spanish pressure. Well, there were a lot of English and Dutch people living there that didn't really have anywhere else to go. See, Jamaica was still Spanish back in 1630, as was Cuba and Mexico and the main most of Hispaniola, so they would have had to have traveled several hundred miles against the wind through enemy water to reach a friendly island. That was just out of the question, so They headed for the closest bit of land where they could avoid the Spanish, which was the Mosquito Coast. Now, the Mosquito were at least not overtly hostile, so they were able to set up a camp. Not a colony and not even a settlement, just a place where they could eat and sleep. Now, one of the most prominent sailors among those exiles from Providence was a Dutchman called Abraham Blaufeldt. He kept those people together. He led them, and eventually he got them back to civilization. He had become almost a mythical figure to the Buccaneers. He was one of the founding fathers, kind of like, if you'll remember, Pierre Legrand, only Blaufeld actually existed. We know he did. He served alongside Admiral Mings and Mansvelt and Edward Morgan later on. So the pirates, here in 1681, stopped at the Bluefields River, and that's just an anglicized version of Blaufeld. It was experiencing, though, something of a renaissance. After Henry Morgan sacked Providence in 1670 on his way to attack Panama, they tried to retake the island for England, but Spain eventually came and took it back, so the men who had been left there fled, much like the Providence Company had about 40 years before, to the Mosquito Coast. There they set up a camp in just about the same place at the Bluefields River. Then, things in the West Indies started getting increasingly uncomfortable for the Buccaneers of the Americas. First Tortuga and then Port Royal became less friendly. The remnants of the Brethren of the Coast were running out of places to stay. They needed somewhere where they could put their feet up. Now, many of them chose those logwood camps near Campeche, on the Yucatan, but the rest seemed to have chosen the Mosquito Coast. After the war, the privateers who had come in from Europe and the South Pacific began more and more to drift towards this place on the Mosquito Coast. And by 1681, there was, well, it was less than a settlement, but more than a camp. It was a place where, if you were in need of a crew, you could probably find some men at Bluefields who were quickly running out of rum and needed to make some money. If you were in need of a woman, you could likely find one on some beachside bungalow who would take you in for the night for the right price. If you needed repairs or supplies or just a safe harbor, it could be found at Bluefields, but it was not a place to call home. It was too exposed to be a permanent base, at least for the time being. Still, Wright and Cook and all the rest stopped off, but they didn't find any of their friends, so they continued on to the appointed rendezvous, the Boca del Toro, just to the south. It was there, at long last, that they finally encountered one of their own. Captain Yanke was there, waiting for them. The three ships, the ships of Captain Wright, Captain Arkambot, and Captain Yankee, lay down anchor and everyone climbed aboard the man-o'-war to share their tale. Wright told all about his daring and perilous capture of that Spanish vessel, but Yankee had a more troubling tale. After the storm that separated the fleet, everybody searched around for a while to try and find one another. Now, Yankee found Captain John Coxon, Yon Williams, and Captain Tristane. That meant that everyone had been accounted for except for Captain Payne. Yankee continued the search, but the little fleet there of Coxon, Willems, Tristane, and Yankee was surprised by an armadilla of the Spanish Coast Guard. Those Spanish ships drove right in between the pirate fleet. They split them apart, and then they began to open fire. Now, Yankee and Willem disengaged. They tacked away. They tried to make their escape. They were too small to be of any real use. They didn't carry any heavy guns. But John Coxon and Tristane covered them with suppressing fire. However, it was clear that even doing their best, the pirates would be overwhelmed if they didn't make their escape as well. In a very daring move, they both tried to flee at once in opposite directions. You see they had ships between them and ships surrounding them, but if they fled at once in opposite directions, they might be able to split the armadilla in half. If they did so, then it was potentially possible that they could regroup and then take on the Spanish properly. But when they fled, the Spanish flota didn't split. They didn't chase after both ships. They ignored John Coxon altogether. The entire Spanish Coast Guard fleet chased after Jean Tristan. Now, this was a good move by the Spanish. They had a much better chance of taking at least one pirate ship down if they stayed focused and didn't get separated. The other pirates could have rushed in to help, but they probably would have been taken down too. So they just had to watch helplessly as the Spanish followed Tristain. They were unable or at the very least unwilling to help him. To quote Dampier, the Spanish fired and chased him, but he rode and towed, and they supposed he got away. End quote. So Captain Tristane had been chased off, and Captain Payne was, well, who knows where? They all kind of assumed he'd been either sunk or captured, and if he did escape, he was unlikely to return this way anytime soon. Now, Captain Willems hadn't been seen since immediately after the battle. It appears that once he and Yankee escaped from the Spanish, he fled. So the fleet was in shambles here. They had to decide what they could do from here on out. John Coxon and Jean Arkambaud thought it was foolish to continue on. They decided it was best to return to Jamaica or Petit Guave or somewhere where news was bought and sold to regroup, and to plan another venture. Plus, when it came to Arkhambod, there were questions about the legality of the expedition now that the Frenchman carrying their commission was gone. But Captain Wright, though, thought he had himself a fine man-of-war, and he wanted to put her to use. John Cook and Edward Davis, William Dampier, that whole crew, they thought that, that was an excellent idea, and Captain Yankee decided to tag along. So the fleet had been dispersed. Most of the captains that were accounted for were heading elsewhere. But Captain Wright, with his tartan, and Captain Yankee decided to sail east from the Bocas del Toro. They were going to sail past Portobello and even past the country of Darien. They were intending to raid the shipping around Cartagena. Now, their ships were mostly in fit sailing condition, so they didn't have to wait around this time. In one of those moments that historians can look back on and see the almost comic timing of it, Captain John Payne arrived in the Bocas del Toro on the heels of those two ships. The entire fleet had already left at the time he arrived. Now, John Payne was older than the rest of the pirates. He had served a long and distinguished naval career back in Europe. He'd come out to the West Indies to privateer, hoping to make enough money to retire comfortably. But then, almost immediately, the war ended. He still hadn't secured his nest egg. And then, he was actually chosen to deliver a notice of an end hostilities to Dutch cities and their governors. And that must have stung especially, considering the financial position that those messages about the end of the war put him in. So, like so many others at the end of the war, he turned to piracy. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? He may have been one of the most talented, certainly the most decorated Navy men in the fleet, perhaps in the entire Caribbean. Well, he was probably the best man to have on your side in a fight, but he really wasn't much of a pirate. He knew everything there was to know about sailing and fighting, but very little else that a pirate needed to know. Where was it safe to make camp and where was it not? Now, the Bocas del Toro were perfect for hiding your ships from Spanish eyes. That was well-known, but it was also well-known among proper pirates that you didn't go ashore. The Indians in these islands were not mosquito, and they were most definitely not friendly. Quote, The Indians here have no commerce with the Spaniards, but are very barbarous and will not be dealt with. They have destroyed many privateers, as they did not long after this some of Captain Payne's men, who, having built a tent ashore to put his goods in while he careened his ship, and some men lying there with their arms, in the night the Indians crept softly into the tent and cut off the heads of three or four men and made their escape. Nor was this the first time that they had served the privateers so. End quote. Now, that wasn't the end of Captain Payne's career. After his men were killed, he would learn his lesson and sail on. But at the time, that still wasn't known to Dampier and all the rest. They were sailing for Cartagena, past Portobello, past Darien, and on to the coast of the Viceroyalty of Colombia. They did find some hunting grounds there, but nothing impressive. They took typical hauls of corn and hog. They had sugar, molasses, a little bit of tobacco... All told, it was worth a pretty penny for a few weeks' work, but it was nothing on the spices or indigo or good old-fashioned silver and gold they hoped for. They met with a Jamaican cruiser, and then they met with another out of Petit Guave who accompanied them for a time, but they came and went. They spent time careening their ships and hunting and genuinely enjoying a leisurely few months pirating about the coast of the Spanish Main. But finally, come August... William Dampier and John Cook talked Captain Wright into returning to La Sound's Key off the coast of Darien. That's the spot where Dampier and Cook and Davis and their friends emerged from the jungle a few months earlier. They hoped to find their word of Lionel Wafer. Captain Wright agreed, and they arrived in just a few days' time as soon as they arrived. They shot off a volley to announce themselves. It was easily loud enough to be heard from shore. And then they sat down to wait. Before long, an Indian canoe set off from the coast, rowing toward them. It was carrying maybe a dozen men, and when the canoe got close enough, it became clear that a few of those men were English. The party climbed aboard. Now, most of them were Indians, which Dampier has described in some detail. He describes them as copper-colored, with black hair strangely cut. They were naked, mostly, aside from a small cloth around their waist, and they never wore shoes, despite having small feet. He talked about the paintings they had all over their body, and at length he went on about their jewelry. They had earrings and nose rings and lip piercings that held what he called beards of tortoise shell. But four of the men were English. They were, in fact, men that Cook and Davis and Dampier knew. Robert Spratlin and William Bowman were there, if you remember those two who refused to cross the river after Mr. Ganey had drowned. The other two were Mr. Richard Godson, the uh, druggist, scholar, gentleman, the translator of the Greek Testament, and then there was Mr. John Hinkson, Mariner. Those two had been assumed dead long ago by Dampier and the others, so all around this was a happy meeting, but Lionel Wafer was nowhere to be seen. Well, he had been loved, but his injuries were, after all, quite severe. That burn down to the bone, and then his river crossing, it... Well, it was no surprise he didn't make it. While all of the Englishmen were shaking hands and embracing and enjoying each other's company, questioning each other about just what they'd been up to for the past months, one of them, who was not named... Turned to look at those Indians, sitting back on their heels, as Indians like to do, all huddled together. And then, suddenly, that pirate exclaimed, quote, Here's our doctor! End quote. And it was, in fact, their doctor, Lionel Wafer. But he looked very much to have gone native. He was deeply tanned all over his body, as he was nearly naked. All he was wearing was a loin cloth and a silver sheath around his genitals. Now, that was different from the Kuna. They didn't have that little piece of ornament. But he was painted all over in the Kuna fashion, and his hair was strangely cut as the Kuna wore theirs. And then he had a a nose ring in his septum, in the middle of his nose. He had earrings and necklaces. He was covered in feathers and beads. He, well, he looked like a native son of the Kuna. I mean, it had only been a few months, but had he already gone native? But as soon as he was called out and recognized by the men, he laughed and he stood and shook hands all around. He'd been waiting to see if anyone would recognize him, and it did, in fact, take them quite a while. At long last, after everybody realized that their doctor was alive, Dampier took him aside and asked, "'Well, exactly what happened to him in that Kuna camp? Why was he dressed that way? The other men were properly dressed. Why had he pierced his nose?' And Wafer did have a story to tell. Those months had been long and difficult. They held more than a few dangers for the Englishman in the Kuna camp. At first, after Dampier and Cook and Davis left, he was delirious with pain. He expected that he would die any time. But an old Indian woman came into his tent every few hours to chew up herbs and to spread them over the wounds, This created a poultice that she would then wrap in plantain leaves and leave him to rest. He was fed as well, and when his four friends arrived in camp, they were fed as well, but there was a hostility about the camp towards the Englishman. The women especially were not kind, but still his wounds healed quickly. It only took about twenty days before he was able to get up on his feet and walk around. The only side effect was that he occasionally suffered a numbness in that leg, which he would occasionally experience for the rest of his life, but his situation was worse. The women, when he was up and walking around, would spit at his feet. They were being fed more and more poorly every day. It soon became clear that... Those people in the Kuna camp thought that Dampier and his party had forced those Kuna guides to travel north against their will, and that they would then force them on board their English ships to serve as scouts and guides and hunters, and this wasn't exactly an unfounded fear. Now that wasn't what Dampier and Cook were doing, but there had probably been many Kuna and Mosquito men hustled onto pirate ships and even merchant and navy ships. Now, the Kuna and the Mosquito were friendly, but let's face it here, Europeans in general weren't exactly considerate of the needs of the Amerindians. Those Kuna told Lionel Wafer that they feared for their sons and their husbands and that they had been gone too long. The women began gathering wood and stacking it in the middle of town, and every time they passed one of the English, they stared daggers at them. Soon it became clear what that stack of wood was. It was a pyre. They intended to burn the English if their men weren't returned, and they gave them a time limit, ten days. The days passed slowly, one, two, three... And they dragged on, four, five, six. It was becoming clear that they were hostages, or if not hostages, exactly prisoners, who were condemned. Seven, eight, nine. The Englishmen resigned themselves to their fate. But then, on that very last day of their life, a group of Kuna warriors, led by a high-ranking chief, came to town. They saw the pyres being built, and they met the Englishmen, and they talked the women down. They told him they didn't need to burn the prisoners. He suggested that those Englishmen could be taken north to the Kuna camp up on the coast, where they were much more likely to hear word of their sons. Then, if they still had no word, or it appeared the English had taken the Kuna on board, there they could be killed. So the Kuna took the Englishmen north. It was a perilous, terrible journey. It nearly claimed all of their lives, but at long last Lionel Wafer found himself at the mercy of a Kuna king, who had a wife that had taken ill. Wafer was known to be a doctor, so he was taken to her, and he found she had a high fever. But then the kuna took her out into the river and placed her on a stone. The young men of the tribe began to shoot arrows at her, little needle-thin arrows to bleed her. Wafer was appalled. He saw that whenever one of the arrows struck a vein, it would spurt blood, but it wasn't doing the job, and it was putting the king's wife in terrible pain and torment. So he told the men to stop. He told them to bring her to shore. There he produced a small blade and cut into one of her veins. She began to bleed, and she bled more, and the king believed that Wafer had deceived him and killed his wife. Wafer was grabbed, and he was about to be hustled out, but he convinced the king to let him finish his work. And he was just in time. She had bled just enough, twelve ounces, and Wafer bound her cuts. He spent the night in custody, though. His fate was hanging on that of the king's wife. In the morning, he was collected and brought into the village square. There was a solemn, quiet crowd watching him. He may have expected a horrible, horrible death, but instead, he was lifted up and the people cheered. His patient lived, it turned out, and her fever was gone. She was already up and walking. She came out to greet him. Wafer. well, the next few weeks became a blur. He was dressed as one of the Kuna. He was revered by them, almost as a god. His nose and his ears were pierced, ceremonial ornaments were set there, he was carried everywhere he went in this great hammock. He was fed the finest food by the most beautiful women, and those women stayed around to see that all his needs were met. I mean, that's not bad, right? If I were Lionel Wafer, I'm not sure I would have returned to English society, but it was becoming clear that the king and his wife were preparing to marry him off to one of their daughters. Now she was very beautiful, and Wafer even considered marrying her, but that would mean giving up his old life and living among the Kuna, probably never seeing home again. So he convinced the king to allow he and the other Englishmen to travel north. They were going to that village on the coast. The king allowed it, but I suspect that he knew what Wafer was up to. While Wafer was there, he continued enjoying himself as he had been doing, but then one day... They heard the unmistakable sound of a heavy gun being shot at sea and it was then that wafer and the other four a small cadre of kuna they set out to meet the english and they had their reunion now as i said it was mostly a happy affair but i wonder if lionel wafer when he was writing down his account later in life ever wondered what life might have been like if he had married that kuna princess and settled down there was a sadness here though Mr. Godson, that scholarly druggist who loved the Bible, well, he took ill once he was on board the English ship, and he died three days later. However, he was taken ashore and properly buried in a fashion that would have pleased him. The fleet set out once again. They were headed east, this time beyond Cartagena. You see, Cartagena was too strong to attack— They remembered all the attacks of the Buccaneers, and remembered well the visitations of Henry Morgan on the coast. Dampier wrote, We passed by Cartagena. We sailed in sight of it, for it lies open to the sea, and had a fair view of Madre de Popa, or Nuestra Señora de Popa, a monastery of the Virgin Mary, standing on the top of a very steep hill just behind Cartagena. It is a place of incredible wealth, by reason of the offerings made here continually, and for this reason often in danger of being visited by the privateers. Did not the neighborhood of Cartagena keep them in awe? It is in short the very Loreto of the West Indies. It has innumerable miracles related of it. Any misfortune that befalls the privateers is attributed to this lady's doing." The Spaniards report that she was abroad that night the Oxford Man-of-War was blown up at the Isle of Vaca near Hispaniola, and that she came home all wet, as belike she often returns with her clothes dirty and torn when passing through woods and bad ways when she has been out upon an expedition, deserving, doubtless, a new suit for such eminent pieces of service. End quote. What he's saying there is that they stood in awe of the monastery in service of Mary, and no privateers dared attack the place. He's also saying that the Spanish tradition held it that, and he relates this with awe, that it was in fact the virgin mother, Mary, who traveled the ocean on that night in January 1669 when Morgan and his lieutenants were all aboard the HMS Oxford. It was Mary who lit the powder flame who exploded the oxford, destroyed the ship, and killed more than a few pirates. So they moved on. They moved past Maracaibo toward the Dutch island Curacao. But before they reached the island, Wright suddenly decided to turn back. Now, it's probable he actually gathered some sort of news from some of the locals, or maybe he overheard a bit of gossip in a tavern. You see, they were back in civilization now, and even here, in Spanish waters, near Spanish cities, they were given the benefit of the doubt. Now, of course, they used fake names, and oftentimes probably had to bribe their way past guards. They were certainly watched, but as long as they kept to themselves and didn't cause any trouble, they could visit the taverns and their brothels to the heart's content. For Dampier and Cook, the men who had been in the Pacific for years... It must have been a strange feeling. But what they were looking for when they doubled back isn't exactly clear. There is mention of vessels hauling pearls, but what they came upon was a decent-sized Spanish vessel on her way to Maracaibo. Wright was the pirate to catch up to her first, and he engaged the ship. He opened with a volley from his big guns, and then he switched over to those swivel guns and small arms. Then Yankee arrived, after maybe twenty minutes of fighting— and he entered the fight. While the Spanish craft was busy dealing with Captain Wright, Yankee boarded her, and suddenly the fight was one of pistols and steel on deck. Yankee's men fought hard, and they pushed the Spanish back, and then Wright was actually able to come aboard opposite him on the other side of the Spanish, so the two crews had the Spanish surrounded, and they surrendered. They took the prize to a quiet harbor to discuss just what to do with her, She was a 12-gun ship laden with mostly sugar and tobacco, and a full armory with shot, powder, and guns. It was a good ship, a good prize, even if the cargo wasn't very worthwhile. Wright originally claimed the ship. He said he had engaged her first, but Yankee argued that claim. He cited privateer code. He and his men had boarded the ship first and taken the fight to the Spanish By Wright's, according to the privateers, it was his. But Wright countered that, since he had the only letter of mark in the group, which, by the way, was no longer valid here, but he argued he should get the ship. Things began to get a bit heated. The men raised their voices and had hands gripping their sword hilts with white knuckles. But then the crews intervened. They said they wanted to put it to a vote. Now the English crew of Captain Wright didn't want the ship. They wanted to keep the vessel they had, so they voted to give this new ship to Yankee. But Wright transferred his guns and his cargo to Yankees Dutch vessel. Yankee moved his to the new Spanish one. In the end, that tartan, that man-o'-war, was demolished. After the refitting, though, they headed on to Curacao. They hoped that they would be able to sell all of their sugar and tobacco there, However, to quote Dampier, "'Captain Wright went ashore to the governor, "'and offered him the sale of the sugar, "'but the governor told him he had a great trade with the Spaniards, "'therefore he could not admit us in there. "'But if we go to St. Thomas, "'which is an island and free port belonging to the Danes, "'and a sanctuary for privateers, "'he would send a sloop with such goods as we wanted, "'and money to buy the sugar, "'which he would take at a certain rate. "'But it was not agreed to.' What that Dutch governor, Nicholas van Liebergen, was saying was that he couldn't trade with the pirates here. But if they went on to this Danish island, he would send a ship that was absolutely not involved with them to buy their goods, which then his ship could bring from the Danish port back to Curacao. But to do so, he offered them insufficient terms. And, of course, the governor couldn't trade with pirates here. Curacao was surrounded by Spanish colonies. Spain and the Netherlands were closely allied at this point. Curacao had basically become a giant Dutch warehouse that handled all of the goods Spain needed to sell. It has a fascinating backstory, and eventually I want to get around to telling the story of the Dutch in the West Indies. It's a complicated story, though, and I need to wrap my head around it before I can do it justice. So the pirates continued on. They skipped past St. Thomas and sailed on to what they called Salt Tortuga. Now, that was an island off the coast that resembled a turtle. That was in April 1682. A lot of time had passed. They had pirated about for months. Now, they called Salt Tortuga Salt Tortuga to differentiate it from the French Tortuga. Up near Hispaniola. That's the city that we've talked quite a bit about, but Dampier just totally brushes it aside. He sounds like some 16 year old punk who proves just how obsolete all of your opinions and reference points are. He's like, Yeah, I guess I heard Tortuga used to be cool, but nobody goes there anymore. It's so 1660 late. Everyone goes to Petit Guave now. Why don't you know that? But of course he was right. Tortuga was well past her privateering prime. Now, the pirates knew that they could sell their cargo in Petit Guave if it came down to that, but they had a long way to get there and the whole of the Windward Islands to try their luck. Those were the most densely populated and competitive islands in the West Indies. They were sure to find something there. But they didn't find anything there. No one would trade with them. They had become pariah in those lesser Antilles. They were chased off at the docks more often than not. Sometimes they were threatened with arrest. Once they were even actually detained until it became pretty clear that a few hundred angry, drunken, armed, and quickly becoming broke pirates would descend on the magistrate's office if they weren't released. Now, they did catch a break. They had been rebuffed by the governor once again and were sitting on the street, starting to feel a bit hungry. Wright was then approached by an Irish trader who was fresh off the boat from the old country. He said he had a hold full of salted beef, and the prices here weren't what he had expected. So this Irishman was willing to trade some of his beef for some tobacco and sugar, which he had a license to trade. He could absolutely move. Now, this wasn't exactly the purses full of gold that they were hoping for, but... The men were growing hungrier and more restless by the day. They needed something, so Wright agreed. He also stipulated that they had to throw in a cask of rum. They did have a second piece of amazing luck in those few months that they spent wandering aimlessly around the Caribbean. They happened upon a few other pirates, down on their luck, and what they were quickly realizing was a society that was leaving them behind— those pirates were none other than Captain Tristan and Jan Williams. As it turned out, they had both made it safely away from that Spanish Coast Guard fleet and made their way here to the Leeward Islands. They were safe and sound, not in a Spanish prison, as it had been feared, but they were just as disaffected as Captain Wright and his crew. Now this was a happy moment they found out that their old friends were alive, and they had the opportunity to share some of that beef and rum, but it soured quickly. You see, these islands, and they were actually leaving the Windward Islands and heading up into the Leeward Islands, but these islands just weren't good places for pirates and privateers. It wasn't dangerous, exactly. I mean, they might be arrested now and again, but there weren't pirate hunters or Spanish looking for them. It was just that They were, oh, they were obsolete here. Back in Jamaica and along the Spanish Main, the war was ongoing. Imperial Spain controlled the water and all of the resources, and then old Henry Morgan built fortresses and navies to keep her at bay, and the pirates had to scrape and work for everything, but they were able to make a living. But here, England and France and the Netherlands and even Spain all intermingled. They'd left the war behind them. Now they were concerned with trade and profit and commercial enterprise. The governors were secondary powers on these islands. It was the company that was in charge. Now that might be the British East India Company or the Dutch West India Company or the French or whomever, but they controlled the ebb and flow of sugar and slaves and cargo and and profits. These islands were cosmopolitan international cities, and they were bustling and moving like living organisms. It was a brave new world, and, well, it was one that didn't need men like George Wright or any of his old privateer naval brethren. However, on the other hand, William Dampier and Lionel Wafer, well, they saw this writing as clearly as any of them, but they processed it differently. Dampier and Wafer were educated men. They were relatively cosmopolitan themselves, and they were much more acclimated to the ways of polite society. So they brought what they saw to John Cook and Edward Davis. This voyage was going nowhere, they said. The fleet had met an impasse, and nothing that these old sea dogs can do would change that. So these men, Cook and Davis and Dampier and Wafer, well, they were all younger, They were more vital. They were certainly more vital than their captains and most of those men, and they realized that they quickly needed to unhitch themselves from this sinking ship. Cook and Davis made it their personal mission to capture a ship, any ship they could find as long as she was seaworthy. As you might imagine, it didn't take long. They were skilled pirates. They sailed on for a bit, but just off the coast of Puerto Rico, they took out a boat and captured a Spanish merchantman who was small and fast, and they brought that ship back to the fleet. Now this resembled in a lot of ways what they had done back in the Pacific under Bartholomew Sharp. They were acting independently. This time, though, their companions were having none of it. Wright, when they came back, announced that he was leaving the fleet he said that he was going to try his luck selling this cumbersome cargo elsewhere. He wanted to spread out the web, you know, we'll hit twice the ports that way. Now, it may have been that he was upset at losing so many skilled crewmen. You see, that new ship was filled up with English crew. All of those Pacific Adventure veterans were there. John Cook, Edward Davis, Dampier, Lionel Wafer, even Spratlin and Bowman and Hinkson and then all of the others that had escaped the Pacific, but there were even a few new recruits who saw that they had a far better plan than those other older captains. John Cook was once again made Captain John Cook, and they spent a few days getting their ship ready. They turned her into a bona fide pirate ship. She was lean and she was fast, and then they anchored off the coast of Hispaniola. They were coming very near Petit Guavre, which many hoped would be the end of their journey, where they could sell their cargo. But in the night, while the Englishmen were sleeping and finally feeling secure for the first time in months, a fleet of canoes rowed over to their new ship. They were skilled and rowed silently. The men in those canoes climbed aboard this newfound English ship without so much as a noise. They drew their cutlasses and their pistols. They snuck into the crew's quarters and positioned themselves around the room, and then they struck. They didn't fire, they didn't stab, they didn't strangle anyone. They bound that crew of English pirates. They held them at gunpoint, and they took their leaders captive. It was revealed that the perpetrators, those dastardly pirates, were none other than Captains Yankee and Tristane, and their company of French privateers. You see, where they were off the coast of Hispaniola was French territory. And Captains Yanke and Tristain had, well, they had letters of marque from the French governor. They had commissions from the governor at Petit Guave. And they wanted this new pirate ship for themselves. They wanted it along with all of the ships and the cargo of their own. So they took each and every English pirate captive and took command of the ship, This is the worst sort of betrayal. If it was revenge, well, maybe you could understand. But what was there to revenge here? None of these men that they took captive had been there to abandon Captain Tristane when he was being chased off by the Spanish. This was just greed. This was greed of the lowest, dirtiest, most rotten sort. Now, I'm wondering here if Captain George Wright didn't know that this was coming, or at least didn't suspect it was coming. He just sailed off, looking for other ports, but he did so before they entered French water. He sailed south to avoid their territory, and he left Cook and Dampier to their fate. If they had stayed on his ship, he would have obviously brought them along, but they took their own ship, and they left his crew. So he let them sail on, unknowing, into these French waters. And here's the rub. Those Frenchmen were legally privateers. They were completely within their rights on this entire voyage. They were seen to the will of the governor and, by extension, of King Louis the Fourteenth. The English, though, were nothing more than pirates. They had zero authority. This was, on some level, the duty of those scheming, vile, detestable French dogs to turn them in to the authorities in Petit Guave. They were doing the right thing, at least according to the kings of both France and England. Cook, Davis, Dampier, Wafer, all the rest, they realized that they had been played. They knew that they had been played brilliantly. They'd worked for years, more than three years since they had seen Jamaica, and for Dampier and Wafer, more than seven or eight since they'd seen England. And they had now nothing to show for it. They had no money, no cargo, and no ship. And they realized that the possibility was very strong that soon they would be hanging from French gallows at the behest of a man that they had trusted, a man that they had called their friend. So the crew was put ashore at Ila Aveche, off to the south of Hispaniola. That's the very same island where the Virgin Mary had appeared to destroy the Oxford. Perhaps the Spanish were right. Maybe she did deliver punishment to the pirates. They realized that at least this was a poetic enough place for that to be the case. The English were marooned. They had no guns and really nothing in the way of provisions. Certainly no ship. But what happens next differs depending on the account you read. According to some, Jan Willems, a Dutchman, realized what had happened and sailed back to Isla Avache to rescue the English. But according to William Dampier, it was actually Captain Tristane that took ten men on board his ship, including Cook and Davis. You see, here's the thing. If it was Jan Williams, he was going back to rescue them out of that sense of duty and loyalty I talked about among the pirates. But if it was Tristane, then he was taking them before the governor to see that they were properly executed. This is about to become an important distinction. There were a few men on board a ship headed to Patigua that next day. When they arrived, the French crew went ashore to enjoy their first night back in what was basically their home city. But while they were away, the English took control of their ship and sailed it out from under the nose of the captain, the harbor master, and the governor. Unfortunately, William Dampier wasn't there, so we don't have any details about what happened, but we do know that they returned to Ila Avache in the night, and they rescued their countrymen, and they sailed away without anyone knowing what they had done. They sailed past Petit Guave, along the coast of Hispaniola in the night, toward Tortuga, that is, French Tortuga, and onward to their final destination, the North American colony of Virginia. That night, when the men realized that they had made good their escape, they named their new ship under Captain John Cook the Revenge. But here's the question. If you choose to believe Dampier, that Tristan had betrayed them, then that was an apt name. They had taken their own ship back in retribution as well as all of his cargo. It was revenge. That's a good and that's a morally defensible story. That sounds good before a judge, right? It was those filthy French all along. But if it was in fact Jan Willems who rescued the English and they stole his ship, well, that was an act of rank, backstabbing betrayal. And, well... Considering what was going to happen in the story to come, the name Revenge takes on a hint of prophecy. Next time, we're going to take a step back from what the crew of the Revenge was up to. While they are whiling away the days in Virginia, we're going to return to Jamaica. We're going to look at what happened to Lord Carlisle, Henry Morgan, as well as the militarization of Jamaica and the Caribbean. At the end of last week's episode, I mentioned the colony of Libertalia. Now, one of you got in touch with me on Twitter and asked for some clarification on that. They were absolutely correct, and I'd like to clarify, the colony of Libertalia was mostly fictional. Now, we're going to talk all about Libertalia, the myth and the reality of it, but the conversation we had got me thinking... In fact, it changed the entire thrust of today's episode. I had an episode, Questions and Answers Part 2, written out, but after having this conversation, I couldn't get this idea out of my head. I wanted to talk about who these people were and why they were doing what they're doing. It's something that we need to remember to look at because what these people were doing was entirely separate from what Morgan was doing. And it's entirely separate from what Captain Kidd is going to be doing, or what Avery is going to be doing, or what Blackbeard is going to be doing. These are different people in different ages, and we need to discuss the motivations of them as people rather than one-note characters. And thank you to everyone for listening as well as everyone who has helped support us, either by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, or by supporting us on Patreon. I couldn't do this show without you. To all of you, thank you very much. Our theme music today was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig, or as the young lady who may be our youngest listener likes to call it, The Lady's Song. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistory.com, or you can get in touch with us at Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.